Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on a move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 141. Well, just ahead, Boeing has an inventory problem. Too much inventory. Plus, on the heels of the best quarter ever, Tesla continues to promise full self-driving, even in the midst of a government investigation. And Axos CEO Gary Garibrands, a bank whose stock is in the tank, but showing big returns on its investments, will dig a little bit deeper into Axos, but first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With Era, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And hey, don't miss a single episode of The Drill Down. Make sure you hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. That way you can, way you can catch every single show. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We're going to tell you some business stories behind some stocks in the move. Join me to help me do that. As always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, how are you? Corey, I'm really well. How about yourself? Things are great. Beautiful sunny day here in Northern California. You like that? Sunny in Southern California too. Loving it. Always. Now, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, I want to look at some big companies today. There's a bunch of big companies that reported earnings in the last week. And uh, uh, all of them saw their stocks uh, fall or their share price fall during uh, post earnings. But I thought it was just kind of interesting. Some really big companies facing some very common problems as well as some specific problems to those companies. So I thought we'd start with Boeing. Boeing, Boeing trades under BA and shares have lost 2% in a year. Yeah, so Boeing shares down after earnings uh, um, reporting an interesting quarter. And I thought maybe the most interesting thing about what's going on at Boeing right now is their inventory problems. Now we've all got inventory problems, right? We've all Mm -hmm. had difficulty buying the things we want in the grocery store or car prices surging used and new because they can't get the semiconductors, another inventory problem. Boeing has the opposite problem. They've got 110 jets in inventory that for various reasons, mostly safety concerns, and they've got to redo, and particularly their Dreamliner 787, they have to redo the doors on those. And it's a very maintenance uh, 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 intensive, human uh, intensive process. Added a billion dollars to the cost in the most recent conference call. That 110 jets in inventory puts $25 billion of stuff laying around for Boeing Wow. Until they can get those jets fixed up and out the door. That's uh, a lot of money on the floor. Yeah, so it's a very different kind of problem um, because it is a labor-intensive problem. Uh, they talked about on the conference call about, you know, how on one hand it is an advantage to them because all the problems that their uh, competitors have and Airbus and, and other companies have 
in getting stuff that they need to finish their 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 jets and their planes. They don't have that problem. They've got the opposite problem. They've got too much. So the inventory problems plaguing the rest of the world aren't plaguing Boeing. They've got a completely different problem, uh, which CFO Brian West tried to spin on a positive note. On the seventy-seven three and a half billion, um, you know, we previously described a pretty labor-intensive rework solution on the door surrounds. And in the quarter, we determined that this rework was going to be needed to be formed on all of the airplanes' inventory. So the abnormal is a billion higher and will mostly go through 2023 because of this higher rework cost and the production rates being lower for longer. Um, this, in turn, has our delivery slide to the right. So more airplanes will be impacted, not just the ones in inventory. And we provided for estimated customer cons concessions because of these delays, which drove the $3.5 billion charge. Um, you know, while, while this hurts in the near term, um, we still believe it's the right thing to do because long term, uh, we're going to sell a lot of these 787s for decades. So, yeah, he calls it the right thing to do. And, yes, I would say that assuming and making sure that the doors stay on the planes is the right thing to do. I don't know if it's a morally right thing to do. It's just the right thing to do. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the 787, it is interesting to me how slow the rollout of that plane has been. I was actually on one of the first 787 flights um, as part of a, a story I did for Bloomberg now, the, now over a decade ago. Um, and it just shows you how slow this thing has been to roll out. Corey, what is your next showdown? I want to look at another company I've covered a lot over the years, Intel. Uh, one of the most interesting times for Intel, I think, in the last 20 years. Intel trades under INTC and shares have lost 10% in the past 12 months. So interesting times at Intel, uh, not least of which because they're, of course, they're going through this big change where PCs are not the dominant part of their business. That has been true for a while, and data center has been important. They brought in new management and Pat Gelsinger, who had formerly run VMware, but was a longtime Intel executive. And he has really uh, pushed the company to invest billions and billions and billions in developing new plants because he thinks that that is going to be their strength in the future. And the result is really hitting uh, their income statement. Um, even though, of course, the capital expenditures, these are multi-year expenditures, it's already hitting the income statements, already hitting the gross margins. Gross margins at Intel, you know, once 50% was good, over 50% was good. But for most of the last decade, they were up over 60% uh, gross margins. That has fallen dramatically. And they're they're putting up gross margins more like 54%, like well below the 60s that they were hitting only a few years ago. Also, interestingly, their data processor business, while it's growing, some of the buyers of those chips are shrinking. That is Amazon and Microsoft um, are, are going on and starting to develop some of their own chips. So a new source of competition for these guys. But nonetheless, revenue is up 22% for the quarter. Earnings were down quite a bit. Uh, Intel, until the sell-off after earnings, uh, Intel's uh, stock price, and as much as it tells us anything, was uh, one of the only two stocks in the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, that in Taiwan Semiconductor, they were up for the last year. So there is some positive momentum for the company. Interestingly, so here is CEO Pat Gelsinger talking about how the, he really thinks the margins are going to come back for Intel. Over time, we think we have a structurally superior margin model for our business, where uh, I think everybody's seeing uh, acute uh, inflation and foundry costs and others in the industry, where our factory network will give us a lot more opportunities to you know, create uh, a more balanced uh, cost structure that others in the industry will not be able to accomplish. So overall, we see you know, great margin outlook, 
great cash flow and uh, free cash flow opportunities over the horizon, and we'll characterize those uh, much more uh, carefully as part of our investor meeting. But you know, we see the advantages of our business model over anybody else in the industry to be quite substantial for supply for margin creation, for cash flow generation, and all of these will come together in a very powerful way. So Intel really swinging for the fences, spending tens of billions to build new plants that will take many years to come online, but recognizing that that balance sheet and the ability to spend that money puts them in a different position than all of the other semiconductors out there with a the possible exception of Taiwan Semi. We'll wait to see how this plays out, but it's a fascinating time for Intel. Now, Corey, what's your next drill down? I know you love it when I look at Tesla, so why not? Oh, Tesla. Tesla trades under TSLA, as we all know, and shares have bas- are basically flat over the past 12 months. Yeah, so Tesla, um, you know, fascinating company. They just put up a, a fourth quarter that was their best, qu- best quarter ever, uh, about $16 billion in automotive revenues uh, and for the quarter. Um, uh, and, you know, really nice gross margins, 31% margins, uh, operating margins of 15%. That's probably a more accurate number when you're comparing it to other car companies and it compares well. But uh, the valuation of you know, the stock sold off massively after putting up what was a pretty good quarter, uh, probably their best ever. Um, so you wonder why does the stock sell off? I don't get into that. I don't know why the stock goes up. I don't know why the stock goes down. Um, certainly they're putting up results. So you can't imagine what profitable results will look like for this company. Now you can actually see what they look like and they can be measured. But it is an interesting time for this company yet because there's still so much promised, so much on the come. Um, and uh, in yesterday's conference call, you might remember back in October, Isaac, Elon Musk came on the call and said he wasn't going to do the conference calls anymore. Well, oh, yeah. he was back again. Here we are in January. He's back already. Um, but uh, uh, he acknowledged that they were struggling to make the cyber truck affordable. Remember, they've been promising the cyber truck for a couple of years. Um, he said aspirationally, they'd sell a quarter of a million of them every year. But that doesn't give us any sort of time frame, even though his time frames don't mean a lot. He also said Tesla was not even working on this $25,000 car that was long rumored. And to the earliest it might ever show up might be 2024, 2025. Of course, he has a long history of missing his own deadlines. And yet the headlines on the interwebs were all about Musk says this is going to happen this year. 2022 is going to be the year of the robot, all this stuff. Uh, as if he had delivered on his results all these years. Um when he did come back on a conference call, uh, and I wanted to listen to the soundbite carefully, it's just kind of amazing because it's just kind of rambling, seems to be top of his head, and he's really continuing to pump this full self-driving. These cars are not full self-driving. They're selling them as full self-driving. They're offering a software package that is full that they call full self-driving. It is not that, and indeed, um, they are being investigated by the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration um, over um, a, about a dozen accidents, um, uh, including fatality, uh, that um, uh, is worrisome, I would think, uh, for investors in the company if they're really banking on this full self-driving. And you know, Musk saying it's going to be safer than humans. Here is Elon Musk. Obviously, you want to get to as close to perfection as possible. Um, so, uh, frankly, being safer than a human is a low standard. Um, not a high standard. <laughs> People are very, very lossy, often distracted, tired, you know, uh, texting. Uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's remarkable that we don't have more accidents. So uh, it, 
yeah, it, so, so actually being better than human, I think is just a relatively straightforward, frankly. Uh, how do you be a thousand percent better or 10,000 percent better? Uh, yeah, that's, that's what, you know, it gets that's much, much hotter. Um, but I think anyone who's been in the FSD beta program, I mean, if they were just to plot the progress of the beta in interventions per mile, um, it's obviously trending to, you know, a very small number of interventions per mile, and, and, and pace of improvement is fast. Um, and there's, there are several profound improvements to the FSD stack that are coming you know, in the next few months. So, <clears throat> yeah. Um, I, I would be shocked if we do not achieve full self-driving safer than a human this year. I would be shocked. So I think that's Musk's uh, take at Casablanca. Shocked. He'd be shocked if the cars weren't better than humans, as if that's measurable. Um, but let's remember in context, right? In 2016, he said Tesla would be fully self-driving cross-country. It would be able to do a full self-driving cross-country trip by 2017. In 2018, he said full self-driving would be feature complete by the end of 2019. In January 2020, right, two years ago, he said that they would be feature complete in a few months. On an earnings call last year, he said, I'm very confident about full self-driving functionality completed by the end of the year. I'm literally driving it. So I think that, you know. So what are you trying to people, say, Corey? I'm trying to say <laughs> that I don't know if anyone believes this stuff, <sighs> but there's no reason to. He has missed all of these deadlines on this technology. And yet that is still part of the bull case for the stock that there will be a 15 to 20% software purchase on top of the purchase of every car so that the buyers of the car can get full self-driving. We'll see. All right, coming up next. Uh, interesting look at a company, a bank that's doing things a little bit differently um, and seeing a real uh, uh, fantastic return on their investments, even if the market uh, doesn't seem to like it right now. We're going to talk to Axos CEO Gary Garibrands when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. As promised, Gary Garibrand joins us right now. He's the CEO of Axos Financial a bank, a, an interesting bank. Not, no, that's not an oxymoron. It's an interesting bank based in Las Vegas, I guess, but it doesn't really matter where you're based. Greg, where are you actually? Well, so right now I'm coming to you from San Diego where the bank is headquartered. Our, okay. We have actually a holding company, Axos Financial, and that's headquartered in Nevada. And the reason we have that there is we have other subsidiaries, including uh, a security subsidiary, which is our largest subsidiary in addition to the bank. And that has a couple of businesses there as well. And I want to get into all that. Um, uh, you guys are, while you are able to bank in 50 states, according to your SEC filings, you aren't anywhere. I mean, yes, you're in San Diego. You are actually living. This is not a metaverse. This is not a uh, hypothetical conversation. This is two living humans talking. But you guys are a digital bank. And I think that that's 
uh, remains an interesting business model even 25, 30 years after the first digital banks. Right. I think so. And I think the reason why is that there's a lot of infrastructure costs associated with running branch networks. And obviously in the pandemic, there was a lot of issues with respect to being able to access branches. So if, if policies and procedures were based on the ability to go into a branch and do something, that was obviously disruptive. So not only are we able to have the lower cost associated with serving our customers uh, by not having that physical infrastructure that really isn't worth the cost. We also have everything digitally. So we think that's more convenient for our customers. There used to be requirements around having physical banks, making sure you were served uh, traditionally underserved communities and putting physical bank locations in those communities. Um, obviously, those those things are all gone uh, for a digital bank. How, how does that work here in, in 2021? Well, we do have a branch in San Diego. It's it's a it's a you know where our headquarters for the bank is, and then we do have another branch in Nevada as well. We have obligations to serve the community in those uh, geographies, and then we work to do that through a variety of mechanisms. So even though we don't have physical branches in those areas, we make sure that the mortgage loans that we do are fairly allocated. Make sure we're serving the underserved communities through a variety of different products. We also use innovative uh, methods of doing that, such as sponsoring uh, certain lenders that focus in in those underserved areas. So we're able to essentially uh, work a plan that doesn't really involve branches anymore, which really aren't necessarily the most effective way to serve uh, some of these communities that are underserved. Agreed. Um, I think that the the place for branch banking is obviously different than it, than it's ever been. But, you know, it does have a place for some people, some kinds of customers. I'm not just saying I'm old. I'm saying that there are certain transactions where I actually want to see someone across the table from me. But that's that's our customers of a certain, you know, uh, certain means and certain kinds of transactions. Um, I would imagine that you find that you, you, number one, you would agree with that probably, maybe not, but that you focus your business on the places where your model works the best. What What is that t- typical, what's the best kind of customer for you? Right. So yeah, look, I think I think that increasingly the question of what can be done at a branch and what can be done through personal relationships is sort of a different question. So Agreed. so we have a we have a, a a set of bankers that work with different customers in different ways. So if somebody has a complex financial situation that they need specialized uh, specialized advice for, they would be elevated to certain. Uh, folks who would serve them directly, maybe relationship managers who are specifically assigned to their accounts. And, you know, the the fact that they have that person's cell phone number, able to talk to that person might actually be a better experience for them than it would be in the branch. So, you know, I think I'm not saying that branches are absolutely going to go away, but I do think you see that there's a massive decline in utilization, 90 plus percent. Um, yeah, so I think so I think that uh, I, I think that we've been able to do a bunch of different uh, do a bunch of different things, including banking on the consumer side, banking on the small business side, and larger corporates, all without having to really focus on branch networks in particular, but more on how to serve each of those customer segments. So, and you asked, let me just and let me ask your second question, which yeah. was what who do we focus on? We, uh, our, our consumer bank is generally a middle, uh, a middle, uh, you know, market kind of, uh, you know, it's not a, we're not absolutely a high net worth bank, but we're a mass affluent bank. Our services for our consumer side, not only include a full suite of banking services, we have a self-directed trading business, and we also have a high performing, uh, managed portfolio robo advisor business as well. It's all linked in one application. 
And so what we're really trying to do is serve all of a consumer's needs and make it most convenient for them to bank through this one mega financial app that then uh, that anticipates the needs of the customer. I think the, the, um, the securities business that you have um, and the, the business that you bought from E-Trade um, not too long ago, the E-Trade Advisor Services, t- talk to me about your, your, um, your grand uh, scheme of this, your, your dream sure. of how this all this comes together. Right, right. So, so the business- it's we, weird. There are yeah, a lot of banks well, that have done this. Yeah, well, it is interesting. I, you know, well, I think, I think it's unique and I, and I do think it's an interesting strategy and I'm excited about it. So that business, uh, the business that we purchased that Corey's referring to is a, a, a RIA custody business. So what that essentially means is that there's lots of independent financial advisors that work to acquire customers. Those independent financial advisors often came out of brokerage firms or larger wirehouses. They're looking for banking services for their clients because they don't want to go with a competitive wealth management uh, service provider for banking. So, so if, you're hung, if, you, if, you're a, if you're a former Merrill Lynch guy and you got shook out of the Merrill Lynch thing in 2008 like everybody did, and you've, you've got a good book of business and you've got some people who really rely on you to help them with investment advice, you don't want to then take their banking needs to J.P. Morgan and have J.P. Morgan steal the client. Exactly, exactly. So what we do, what the business we purchased from E-Trade was, it's a custody business. So we basically hold all those assets in safekeeping. We produce statements. We make margin loans. We uh, we provide a variety of services to those RIAs. But the other thing that we're doing in the full scope of the strategy is we're taking our banking applications, including our account opening systems and our full banking application, and making that available through the RIAs to the RIAs end client. And what that benefits the RIA in is that it prevents a competitor from coming in and taking that RIA's wealth management business. It enables the RIA to serve that client better by uh, often automating simple tasks. So th- this is a this is a, a a scenario that's surprising, but how would how would a um, a typical RIA get a check cashed and into the market? Often the client is sending that check in the mail to the RIA. The RIA is then forwarding it to the custodian. That might be a week. Um, if you have an integrated application, the client and client of the RIA simply takes a picture of the check. We know that that client is a good client. We don't hold the check. It's immediately deposited, gets in the market faster. Um, all kinds of customer sort service of. functionality. T plus yeah. three. I mean, well, uh, you know, well, this is a bigger discussion about how stupid the banking system <laughs> is in terms of the technology where we're still relying on 1960s, 1950s technologies well, to get checks to clear. Yes, true. But but frankly, what we're what we're doing is we're just saying if the check gets, we see the check, we're just we're just depositing it immediately for the clients that we. We, that that's our you know. our view is we have a risk management system behind that. We don't need to wait for the time to clear most checks. If you're a good customer and you have wealth with us, we've we have a, a process that goes through and doesn't do that. But I, I do agree, Corey. It's sort of a it's something you don't want to. It, it doesn't this make a is, lot of sense. But I I took a a break from my journalism career to work at a company called Ripple that was trying to modernize the parts of the banking system. And it was yeah. the more you dug into it, the more insane it looked. Uh, but that, I don't want to digress. Um, yeah. Let's talk more about your business. So uh, mortgages have been a big part of your business. Mortgage yes. lending have been a big part of your business. They've been a gr- they had been a big growing part of your business. I wonder where they are right now in terms of the importance of the business in a world where r- rates are rising that right. has a, a significant effect um, on the mortgage business. Right. Well, so we have two primary businesses in the mortgage side. One is a uh, an online um, 
refinance and purchase business where we work with primarily government mortgages. That business does tend to be rate sensitive. We had an amazing year last year. It's kind of come off that high as with refis and rates collapsing. And you know, why wouldn't you? Yeah, right, right. So it was a great time to refinance, but that only happens. People then are locked in at low rates. There's less refinance business and, and purchase business. There's a hot housing market, but there's, there's just not that much volume going through just given the nature of, 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 of the number of transactions. So inventory, that, yeah, sure. yeah, inventory. So that's fallen off a bit, but then we have another business, which is a nationwide business where we uh, lend money to, uh, to high net worth borrowers to buy homes. The average loan size is about $1.6 million and average LTV is around the, in the mid fifties. So you think about an average home price in the $3 million range. Those clients often have unique financial circumstances. They're often business owners. They own property. They have a lot of things going on in their financial situation. No W-2 income. Right. No, a lot let me of, see your paycheck. I don't pay myself. Why would I give myself a paycheck? Right. Exactly, exactly. And that, and that kind of messes up some banks, but we've had an expertise in that for a long period of time. Um, that business has been a little bit stagnant over the last uh, several quarters from a volume perspective, just the uh, the amount we have outstanding on the balance sheet. That that really came from two things. We did pull back in COVID to see what happened. Frankly, I, I would I will say I'm guilty of not thinking that housing prices would go up 25% in San Diego after a crisis, but obviously they did. And then um, and then there's a little more competition in that now. There's more folks coming into that market, and and frankly, housing prices are a little high from our perspective. So we're not being as aggressive as some other lenders, but we have a lot of other um, businesses that are growing quite well that we feel better about from a risk-adjusted return perspective. So let's talk about your return. So you guys have, have uh, published an ambitious return on equity goal of 17%. Yes. You guys haven't hit that since uh, first half of 2017. Right. Um, what, talk to me about you know how you maintain a goal that you've been under for significant period of time and, 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 you know, what that means, how we should understand that goal. Right. Well, and I think that I think of that goal as an aspirational goal. And I believe that if you look at what we're doing on the securities business and when that securities business hits some reasonable maturity, then that would be sufficient for us to achieve that goal. So we're not too far underneath it. We've been, we've been, we've been in the high 15s, the mid 16s. So we've been kind of close to it. Um, I guess I'd say that if 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 we hit our corporate goals all the time, I think your criticism could be uh, could be that we're we're not ambitious enough with our goals. So I, I'd prefer to tell my team that uh, they've done well, but they need to do better. And uh, and I think partly we have added. If you, if you look at the main metrics of our business, are uh, unlike a lot of banks, we've been able to maintain our net interest margin well. We've grown loans pretty well. Um, and we have in our deposit costs, we've done really well on our deposit cost. What we have sacrificed with respect to that is we've, we're spending more money to get those deposits because the securities business generates a, a significant percentage of very low cost deposits, but it's also expensive. And so we we don't, those acquisitions we've done, we're, they're not fully integrated yet. There's efficiencies to be maintained and there's growth to be obtained uh, not only from new customers organically in the in the businesses themselves, but also from cross sell. And so, you know, we're we we just we just closed the E Trade business, you know, four months ago. Whatnot. Right, right, so right. yeah, there there's there's still there's still work to do there. And I well, think let me that ask you about the securities business. What what is right. how do you envision the securities business? Where does that fit into your you right. mentioned the robo advisor, which is one thing. 
Um, yes. What's what is the securities business for you? Well, so right, so we have two primary businesses in the security side, and and I'll call the robo advisor just part of a consumer product offering. So even though that's technically securities, put that to the side. The two primary businesses are a clearing company. That clearing company clears for about seventy introducing broker dealers with more than one hundred forty thousand high net worth customers there. And then the E-Trade business has another 150,000 plus uh, high, you know, high net worth customers. And that's through that the many? RIA business. Wow. Right. So basically our goal is that we, we need to consolidate certain operations in those businesses to save some money on cost and make them more streamlined. We need to take our consumer technology and white label it for all of those independent advisors and brokers so that they can use the technology to open accounts digitally. They can use that technology to serve their customers better. And we can cross sell uh, their customers, uh, banking products and other lending products that will make the RA's business even stickier. Uh, a good example of that would be, why is uh, somebody paying a high rate for a credit card if, if they're willing to have their securities leaned in order to make sure that credit card uh, payment and, uh, and 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 credit is secure, we can just simply have an S block credit card or make a one touch S block loan right off of of the phone. And those are all products that are in development right now. So our goal is to create a truly integrated um, app for clients of the RIA and broker. And for that to be accretive and additive and really round out the entire product set that a broker and RIA would have uh, if they were at Merrill Lynch, but they don't have to be at Merrill where they're getting a 45% payout. They can be at an independent where they're getting a full payout or 80% at a smaller firm. And then the benefit that we get from that is as we serve that technology to those clients, uh, they acquire high net worth customers for us in a customer acquisition model that's symbiotic with uh, with with what their strategy is. That's really interesting. That also, um, you can see why a big bank, you know, uh, that has an advisory business, whether it's a, you know, the giants like like JP Morgan, as I keep mentioning, but, you know, throw in a, a city or a B of A or something, which is, who are all aggressively trying to grow their um, RAA business and their advisor business. They talk about it in every conference call. Uh, yes. And yet, they, they're doing it because they, they, they sock them with fees left, right, and center. Right. And you're absolutely right. And I think the other element that you mentioned is what happened. You know, E-Trade didn't really have a competitive advisory business. Once E-Trade was bought by Morgan Stanley, all the clients of that business were very unhappy because they're all sitting there saying, we're with the... We're, we're independent. Our client data is sitting with Morgan Stanley, the largest competitor that we possibly could have. Right. And you can see everything that our best clients have. They were, they couldn't wait to leave. Right. So they were so happy when we bought them because we're not competing in that way. We're essentially our business that the digital banking business is symbiotic and helpful everything that that banking business does, whether it's the depositing of checks, the ability to have call centers that can handle routine customer service, all those things help these RAAs who really want to focus mostly on client acquisition and management of money and not on administrative functionalities. Well, speaking of uh, finally, of administrative functionalities, that changes your job a lot because those people, those RAAs, they're a pain in the ass. They all <laughs> think they're special. They all yes. think they're carrying the most weight of the firm. They all want some special treatment from the CEO. That's you. That can't be a lot yeah. of fun to get those calls constantly. You know, they're they're all they are all special. And you know, it's interesting. I 
I find that when I talk to my customers, I learn something every time. And you say, really, every time? Yeah, pretty much every time. It's, it's um, if people are unhappy, there's generally a reason. There's every now and then you'll run into somebody who's unreasonable. But most of the time, if you actually listen to people, they may not always have exactly why something is wrong, but there's always some tinge of something that happened. And it, and it may not be able to even be fixed right away, but right. it ought to be on your strategic plan. I mean, the reality, look, the reality of what we do is it's super competitive. They have choices. We have to perform. And I think if you just have that attitude and you just embrace it and, and you know, it's like, it's like, it's honestly, it's free market research. A complainer is free market research, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they're a little noisy sometimes, but you know, it doesn't bother me. I, I enjoy those kind of dialogues and I don't take them personally. What an interesting business you guys are in. Uh, Greg Gerbrandt is the CEO of Axos Financial. Uh, we appreciate your time. And indeed, uh, when the drill down continues, we will have one number about Axos, that drill down bite that tells us a whole lot. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot -E com. And you can listen to the drill down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, be that iTunes, Spotify, uh, you name it. There are so many choices, but make sure you hit the subscribe button. That way you can catch every show as soon as it shows up. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the drill down bite as promised that one number that tells us a whole lot, Isaac. One of the things that's interesting about this company is it returns so much more because of its differentiated business model. It has just so much more profit uh, than and so much more return on its investments than other competitors. It is typical of a bank this size to return about a little under 10%, 9.5% uh, uh, return on equity and the equity that they invest in the business. Here's that number. 18.4%. Axos has returned 18.4% return on equity, um, which is so much better than their wow. competitors. More uh, a double, really, what their competitors are doing. Um, you'd expect that to show up over time if they can keep up those results uh, in a very different environment, in an environment of rapidly rising rates. Uh, we'll see how these guys do, but it's an interesting model to be sure. Are you been listening to Drill Down Podcast? I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire of the Drill Down to Production of the Business Podcast Network. <laughs> <laughs>